is the indelible sound of saxophonist Joel Fromm. Joel Fromm cut his teeth on the public schools of Hartford, Connecticut, growing up with the likes of Brad Meldow. He's toured extensively with Tierney Sutton and appeared on numerous jazz albums, including the likes of Kurt Elling and Diane Shure. Joel's signature sound is the product of his fervent discipline to his craft. Unique, bold, and playful, Joel's nuanced lyricism at once captivates and entertains. Joel and I sat down last month to talk about life during COVID, how he practices, how he thinks about his playing and his sound, and what the future looks like for a working jazz musician from New York City in the post-pandemic era. Hi, welcome to The Playful Musician. I'm your host, Steve Davidson. Each week, I sit down with musicians from all different paths, from composers to conductors, percussionists to piccolo players, to tease out their strategies, practice habits, tips, tools, tricks, routines, and how they keep all of it playful. The Playful Musician is an intimate look into the lives of each musician, how they got to where they are, what motivates and inspires them, and what playing music means to them. If you'd like to learn more about the guests or just more about being playful, head on over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can find show notes, links to all references mentioned in the show, and all kinds of resources related to music. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to The Playful Musician on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, why not leave a review as well? Thanks again, and without further ado, here is this week's episode. Joel Fromm, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Steve. Yeah, this is this is such a pleasure and an honor. I've was listening to um, my favorite CD of yours, which I think is a lot of people's favorite, is the duo album with you and Brad. Yeah, Mel Dow. Yeah, especially the round midnight tune. That was like, that's awesome. <laughs> oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny how that particular part of the session came around because um, that and Olio, if you notice, like those two tunes have kind of the same feel. Uh, mm-hmm. And what it is is right at that period of the in the session, I was trying to think of ways to change up the feeling of those songs so that they wouldn't just be the typical way that people play them. And Mm. I actually had this sort of hip-hop beat in my head. And so so when when you hear, like, you know, uh, the beginning of those songs, the boo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-do
Yeah. Um, you know, that, yeah, that was a very, very special moment in time that we were able to do that. Did you create that baseline that 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 was your creation that well it's really it's really just the it's really just the first uh five notes of the melody so it's it's bo 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 be ba so so i I was just using the first five notes of the melodies excuse me it's it was something that that came to me um uh just in the moment it just felt like the way i wanted to um to play to it was a feel more than anything. I, I was yeah. I'm, I was still playing the, the song, but just putting it into a different groove, basically. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I want to I want to come back to the duo stuff, but first of all, how have you been? How has this past twelve months? I mean, craziness, New York, COVID, everything. How 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 has it treated you? Yeah, it's well, it's it's certainly been a journey. I mean, uh, I, you know, I'm, as I told you earlier, I, I um, am not living in New York uh, anymore. Uh, I moved out of out of Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, after 31 years of living there, I, I moved to New York in 1989. Uh, and so I, I had been there a long time. And I'm back, uh, you know, while we're waiting for the vaccine, I'm back up at my folks place in Connecticut for a few months. And then, you know, I'll have to make some decisions. But but this past year, it's certainly been challenging. Um, you know, once I, I actually did have COVID uh, mm. early on, um, I was I was sick for about a month. Uh, I was lucky enough that I didn't have to go to the uh, into the hospital. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. But I it turned yeah. out that I did have antibodies. I, I had a test afterwards. And, and so I was sick in basically last March and April. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been really tricky because, uh, at that point, all of the work that I had in store was canceled that let just like everybody. And, um, so in the meanwhile, I, I was lucky because I had a very generous landlord who allowed me to, to, uh, to stay for free, uh, for, for the remainder of the year. And wow. then finally, at the end of uh, 2020, I had to make a decision. So I, I, I just, you know, since I still wasn't working, I had to, I had to get out of New York. But uh, so it's been, it's been really a challenge. It's been a shift, and and it's been difficult. But um, I, I'm just grateful that, you know, I'm grateful first of all that I have my folks to to lean on. That that they, you know, they've come up big for me, and 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 mm. really, you know, have invited me back. And and it's uh, and you know, are, we're kind of weathering this storm together at this point. Um, right. So I feel very grateful for them and very grateful for friends and, and the people that, you know, also the uh, music cares. I got a couple grants from them. A lot of musicians have been getting grants through the, you know, the, the music cares organization. And uh, so, you know, through sort of, you know, kindness and, and, and the help of friends and strangers, I've been able to, um, to survive this. And, uh, you know, and, and at this point I'm just waiting to see, you know, I've applied for a couple teaching jobs and places and I'm waiting to see about that. Um, so I'm not really quite sure where I'm going to be (laughs) in, in the next few months. Um, I, it's probably not going to be New York city. I'm, I'm considering some other places. Um, but in the meanwhile, I've been doing some cool stuff. You know, I've been teaching more online. Um, I've been doing private lessons and I'm, I've also started doing, uh, master classes. I did a master class for Juilliard the other day and I've got a few oh, other universities awesome. doing virtual master classes. And I've also started, uh, writing a book. I'm, I'm writing, um, uh, a book that's going to be part 
jazz workbook and part autobiography. So it's um, oh, it's awesome. like kind of a you know a jazz workbook work, workbook in the sense that it has uh, musical exercises, but the exercises will pertain to different periods of my musical life. So it's sort of mm -hmm. it'll sort of go in tandem like that, and I'm in the middle of writing that as well. That's exciting. Yeah. Have you you were teaching prior to all this? You had private students in person. I did. Is that... I did. So I was. Yeah. I. I. Um. I had. A, I had a combination of. Um. You know. I was an adjunct adjunct instructor at the new school. Um, mm -hmm. So I would get a certain amount of students per semester taking their private lessons with me at the new school, and then. Beyond that, I would get, you know, mainly a lot of times I would get touring uh, European or people, you know, people from around the world, musicians that were, happened to be in America that wanted to take a lesson, they would get in touch with me. And beyond that, I was doing a lot of traveling to different universities and being a guest artist as a soloist at, at different, uh, different universities. And that, that was a big, yeah. actually a big part of my work before all of this happened. Right. Uh, you know, I was, I was doing that and, and also, you know, uh, traveling with my trio a little bit, but the teaching part certainly, um, yeah, that's, that's become like many of us has, it's become a big part of what I do. How does that work online? Do you, uh, do you play, <laughs> I'm imagining you don't necessarily play together. Because no, because well, issues. yeah, Zoom Zoom doesn't really allow it because it's there's a <laughs> lag, you know. So which is weird, you know. It's it's just it's odd that that it's it is that way. But I know that there's some software now out there that they're trying to implement that yeah. allows people to play in real time together online. Um, I don't know. I mean, I honestly for for what you know for my purposes um, with and it's most I mostly have saxophone students at this point yeah. on, online, mm -hmm. so the things that I'm generally teaching them and showing them don't necessarily require that we, I mean, obviously it would be nice if we could play together in real time, but, but, I, but I, I get by okay, you know, sort of set, I, I'll send exercises to my students and have them, you know, prepare it yep. and, um, and I'll play for them solo so that they can hear what things are supposed to sound like and so on and so forth. So it, it works out. You know, I was always really averse to the idea of, of, um, of teaching online, I avoided it like the plague for years and years and years. Like people were giving Skype lessons and whatever, and I just and I tried to do it a couple times, and I didn't have the right setup. Um, mm -hmm. But finally, you know, I've got this microphone now and preamp and and all this stuff, and I I kind of figured out the sound part of it. So now that I've done it quite a bit over the past few months, I've gotten used to it, and I've see and I see the possibilities in it more than the mm -hmm. limitations at this point. So it's. I've kind of come around, you know, to, to that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm more, I'm more optimistic about it than I used to be. So <laughs> awesome. Creatively over the last 12 months, have you been involved in any like collaborative, like recordings or live streams or anything like that? Yeah, there, there have been a few. Um, I, you know, I've done some things where, uh, there was actually a, a Canadian big band. And of course now you're, I'm, I'm going to not come up with the name because that's what happens these days. Um, but there's a, is a, a Canadian big band from Ottawa. Oh man, that's, that drives going to drive me nuts. But I did a, I did a chart for them, uh, where they hired me as a guest soloist and, and they, they had the chart and they had a virtual big band ready to go with video and everything. You can probably find it on YouTube, I think, if you probably Google, you know, Ottawa Big Band, Joel Fromm, it'll, it'll come yeah, up. Yeah, I'll um, put a link. I'll find it and put a link. Yeah, in but it's cool. It's a really nice chart, and they just had me do an iPhone video, and, and I did my, my track on GarageBand. 
and uh, sent it in, and they, you know, spliced it all together, and it looks great. And there's some animation and stuff. I mean, that was one of my favorite things that I did uh, while while we were all sort of hunkered down. Um, mm-hmm. Also, there's a really great young jazz vocalist named Ashley Pizzotti, and I did I did a, a, a just sort of a virtual thing with her that uh, along the same lines. Um, uh, just we played, I think, uh, Confirmation or something like that together. Yeah. Um, and so there have been a few things like that, and also some just some recording where people have just done, you know, uh, not not necessarily video, but do done studio recordings where I'll make my track and send it. Um, so those kind of things, yeah. And oh, and also I, this is exciting, actually. Um, you know, I I had done uh, solo on um, on Brad Meldow's last, uh, you know, r- record with uh, Mark Juliana and and uh, um, the uh, the Finding Gabriel. Um, mm-hmm. and the, he's doing, he's in the process of doing a new one. And so I did another sort of crazy, you know, <laughs> rock and roll solo for him on soprano this time. Uh, so I was in the studio with Brad not so long ago. Um, I, I came in and we did a little socially distanced session, uh, uh, nice. in, in, in Brooklyn, uh, for this new record that, that he's working on, uh, which is really going to be remarkable. Um, it's pretty, pretty incredible music. So, um, yeah, so those so those those are the main things that have been that have been keeping me busy uh, in the meanwhile, and I'm also learning to cook a little bit more. <laughs> you know, I'm cooking <laughs> yeah. for myself. I'm I, I got a I got a vegan cookbook from a friend in the mail, and oh, and awesome. uh, and I'm learning how to cook vegan meals. So that's kind of fun. Um, so that's yeah, that's been the other thing too. You know, nice. So uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't. Uh, so we're recording this in mid February. And uh, one of the legends of jazz died this week. Chick Corea passed yeah. away. Yeah. At seventy nine. Did Did you know him? Did you ever play with him or have any contact with Chick Corea? No. I. You know. I wish. I wish I had. Uh, I. I met him very, very briefly once. You know, at a jazz festival. Um, that was actually kind of memorable for me because uh, I was playing. I think it was in Nice. I think it was the Nice Jazz Festival. And I was there with Omer Abital's quintet, uh, and we played, I think, the first set, and then Chick came up. Uh, he had this band with a guitar player and, and uh, Tim Garland, the saxophone, the English saxophonist, really great multi-reed player. Uh, and that was an amazing band because it was like, it was, I think it was Christian McBride, Marcus Gilmore, Chick. Wow. I mean, it was, it was kind of an incredible ensemble. And what what was really memorable about it for me, first of all, was being able to see Chick up close from backstage. I was right on the side of the stage watching Chick play and watching the band play. And, um, you know, when I was in high school, one of my favorite recordings, uh, it was actually a videotape. I had it on like Betamax or something like that. That's how (laughs) how old we are or how old I I shouldn't put you in that category. No, no, we're about the same but uh, there was, I had the video of, of uh, Chicory and Gary Burton live. I think they're in Japan and the duo concert, which is just absolutely stellar. I mean, it's just such beautiful music. And one of my favorite things on that recording is they play Chick's tune, Bud Powell, uh, which is his sort of t- tribute to Bud Powell, sort of a bebop head that he wrote. And just this is gorgeous extended form tune. Um, and he played that uh, with, the, with the quintet or sextet or whatever it was at Nice. And then at the end of the tune, first of all, they sounded incredible. And at the end of the tune, he he went to a coda that I had never heard before. And this coda he had written just went on and on and on. It was this whole new 
part of the song that was new mm. to me, and and it was just this incredible composition that that was an extension of of Bud Powell that I'd never heard before, and that really impressed me because not only was that set just incredibly thoughtful and well prepared, I mean you could just feel the intention behind everything that that band was mm. doing. Um, you know, there was there's just no dead spots in that set set whatsoever, and that's. <laughs> That's, I think, really Chick's legacy. You know, when I, when I think about the things that I'm inspired by Chick Corea, um, you know, you listen to those recordings and you just, I just feel like everything uh, is just so considered. You know, there's the, his, his playing is just so intentional and, and, and really, um, you know, every aspect of it has been, has been thought over, you know, and I, and I really, I really appreciate that. And so that's, I think that's what I got most from Chikoria was just the fact that he really seemed of like a very thorough musician to me. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of what I've taken away from him. But I, yeah, I never got the chance to play with him. I really wish I had known him a little better, but, uh, but yeah, I was right. very, very shocked and sad to, to see yeah. him go. Yeah, it was pretty sudden. Yeah. I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're all mourning that loss. We've had quite a few over the last 12 months. Uh, yeah, we quite have. Quite a few gone to COVID and um, Chick, Chick I, I don't think it was COVID for him, but uh, still, it's like, oh, heartbreaking that another of yeah. our masters has left the building, left the stage. Yeah, that's, that's for sure. You know, so many, I mean, Lyle Mays is gone and, and, and actually I, I personally had a rough one. Uh, Freddie Cole is gone and I played, oh, I played right. with Freddie a lot, uh, near the end of his life. And, um, yeah, there are just, just a lot, a lot of, uh, our really hero musicians, you know, Wallace Roney passed and, you know, Lee Conant's passed and, you know, so many pe so many people, but, yeah. Um, you know, it's weird because we, you know, we, I think about our heroes, you know, our, the people that we grew up listening to, uh, and a lot of people from that generation just aren't here anymore. Um, yeah. and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's always hard when you, when you lose the people that you admire like that. So Jimmy Heath, yeah. too, you know, he's yeah. gone too. So, yeah. And, uh, um, Ellis Marsalis. Ellis Marsalis. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so many, you know. I was thinking about heroes in one of your interviews, you were talking about the importance of meeting your heroes. And I know early on for you, Charlie Parker and Michael Brecker were <laughs> kind of heroes. Did you ever meet Michael Brecker? Yeah, we, we started, we started to know, actually, that's kind of a funny story I should tell. So, so, um, my, uh, repairman in, in New York city for many, 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 many years, uh, is a really great friend of mine, a great guy named Roberto Romeo, who's has had Roberto's for years and years. And, uh, you know, very, one of the most famous, if not the most famous saxophone shop in New York city. And I, I, uh, this was, has to be about 25 years ago. I, um, was up in his shop and I was getting my horn back from being repaired. And so he hands the horn to me over the counter and, and I'm, I'm, I'm in the corner and I'm not looking and I'm just kind of playing away. And, and I look up at Roberto and he, and, and he's kind of smiling at me. And I said, I said, what are you smiling about? He's like, no, 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 no. Just, just keep playing. It's fine. You know? So this goes on for about 10 minutes. And finally, he's laughing. Roberto's kind of giggling and he can't contain himself. I'm, and I finally, I looked up, I said, Roberto, why are you laughing? He says, turn around. And, and Mike, Michael Brecker had been standing there for the last 10 minutes listening. 
you know, kind <laughs> oh of saying, gosh. don't, don't stay kind of saying, don't tell him I'm here, you know? Uh, and we had never met before. And, and so, um, you know, of course, you know, I turned around, I was just flabbergasted and I, you know, I didn't even know what to say. And he's, he's like, man, sounds so good. And you know, what mouthpiece and reads he playing, blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> he actually gave me, um, he gave me his email at the time and his number. Oh, wow. Um, he said, man, you know, if, if you ever want to practice, like, you know, come up and we'll, you can come up to the place and we'll, we'll practice together, which I never ended up doing because I was too scared, which is, which I really <laughs> regret. Um, but, but the cool thing is, is that after that, um, I, on a few occasions I saw him at festivals and, and, you know, we'd have breakfast together or, mm. um, you know, we'd email back and forth. And so, um, you know, I remember emailing him when he was doing the directions in music with, with Herbie and, uh, you know, saying, Hey, I, I really hope we can, you know, get together when you get back. And he's like, yeah, after this tour. And then very soon after that, he got sick. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, he sent me, he sent me some emails that I will really, really always treasure and, and, mm. uh, was just incredibly supportive and just the sweetest, most soulful guy. Um, and obviously just a huge, huge hero and influence. I mean, really, it's interesting that we're talking about Chick because the record that really did it for me, like a lot of tenor players back in the day was, was three quartets, um, mm -hmm. with, with Mike and Chick. And, uh, you know, that's just such an incredible, uh, recording from compositionally and soloistically. Yeah. It's just, just unbelievable. So yeah, you know, um, Michael, Michael was obviously incredibly important to me. Bob Berg too was the same. And, uh, that was very mm. sad too. Um, but, uh, you know, Bob Berg uh, reached out to me just out of the blue. Um, one day I, I was actually working at Starbucks at the time because I had gone <laughs> broke and, uh, um, but I had a record out and, um, my record got played on BGO, I think. And, and, uh, I get this email as I'm coming home is kind of in the, the early days of email. And I open up my browser after coming home from the, from the job. And, uh, and the email was like, you don't know me, but I was walking, I was driving down the LIE and, uh, I heard this minor blues come on and I had to pull the car over and check out who it was. You know, it sounds great. It's great to hear such a great young tenor player, you know, yours truly Bob Berg. And, uh, and he, he had somehow he had found my email just cold, you know? And, and, and so the, I was just, I was just absolutely blown away by that. So I wrote him back and I said, you don't even know what you mean to me because, you mm -hmm. know, I had those Cedar Walton records with you and I wrote down your solos and, and you were one of my biggest influences. And I'm really glad I did that because it was soon after that, that he was gone. So, um, so, you know, the, I think you, you were talking about the importance of your heroes and, you know, having that kind of contact, even if it's just brief, um, with the people that have that kind of influence on you, um, I think is really important. You know, I think it's, mm. I think those moments are, those moments are indelible and, you know, I don't know if those guys realized if they knew what kind of an impact that they were having on me and other people as well. But, um, but certainly those, those moments of, of being able to say thank you to your heroes, I think, uh, is very gratifying, at least on my end anyway. I, I'm glad that I got the chance to say thank you to both of those people. And Johnny Griffin, yeah. too, was the same. I got to say thank you to Johnny as well. So, Oh, you got to meet um, him. Yeah, I got to meet Johnny at, um, at the Blue Note. Uh, he was playing, uh, uh, you know, at the Blue Note late, later in his life. But uh, and he, was, he was so sweet, too. I, you know, I went, up, went backstage because De uh, Dennis Irwin, who I also miss a lot, uh, was playing in the band. And Dennis invited me back up backstage. And 
told Johnny, he said, hey, Johnny, this is, you know, one of your great protégés, and, you know, yeah, you, I know that you've never met him, and I told Johnny the story about transcribing his solo on Rhythming from Thelonious in Action, and he kind of was looking up at me, he's drinking his double scotch, and he goes, you transcribed that whole mess? And then he jumped up and he gave me a bear hug. He's this tiny guy, you know, and he just, like, puts his arms around me and just squeezed me, you know, and I was, and I just could have died and gone to heaven. Wow. So it was, that was pretty cool. So yeah, I mean, I, but those, those moments are, are obviously, you know, very special to me and, and really memorable. And, and, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm gratified that I had the chance to just really say thank you to those guys because they were very, very important for me. This is a cut from Don't Explain, Brad Meldow and Joel's album together. Here they are with Thelonious Monk's Round Midnight. Since you brought up the rhythming solo, um, I wanted to, I, I wanted to talk about that because you had had that's when you had jaw surgery and you for seven weeks you just kind of absorb wrote out that solo and then somewhere maybe this is myth or not but it uh, it seemed like you spent about a year with that solo. I'm wondering what did you what did you do over the course of a year with that solo? Was it how did you, how were you ingesting it? Yeah, I, you know, I don't know what it was. I, I think, I think what happened at the time, you know, I, I had this jaw surgery. I, you know, I had a severe underbite, um, when I was in high school and I just developed that way. And so I had kind of a Jay Leno jaw, you know, growing up <laughs> and, um, and, you know, the doctors said to me and my parents told me that, you know, they said you can either have the surgery or not, but if you don't, it could cause uh, some dental problems for you in the future. And so I thought, okay, I should probably have this done. So they did the surgery and it's like a, yeah, it's like a seven week recovery. Um, mm. And it was over the summertime. So literally the day after I graduated high school, I went into the hospital and, and had this thing done. And of course they wire your jaws shut. So I couldn't, you know, couldn't play for right. seven weeks, drinking all my meals through a straw, which was great for my diet, but bad for my <laughs> mood. And so, um, so as a get well gift, uh, the drummer in my high school big band, this great guy uh, named Bill Dobrow, a really sweet, sweet friend of mine, 
uh, brought over a Get Well gift, and the Get Well gift was Thelonious in Action, Live at the Five Spot. And I had never heard Johnny Griffin before. I didn't know anything about Johnny Griffin. Uh, I knew who Roy Haynes was, and I didn't mm-hmm. know who Abdul Ahmed uh, 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 Malik was, uh, who was the bass player on that record. But And I knew who Monk was, but I, I had like Monk with Coltrane and Rouse. I had never heard Johnny Griffin ever. So mm, I put yeah. the record on, and I, I hear Rhythmining come on, and this tenor solo comes up, and it just absolutely floors me i mean i was like who is this guy you know this guy is so unbelievably swinging so hip and slick and bluesy and just has all of this stuff that i want and so you know i knew actually what happened is my parents went on vacation i think to the catskills no no not no to the poconos maybe with Mm -hmm. me and we had a little cabin up there and we were with other friends of theirs and I think most of the time, most of my time up there was spent in my bedroom with my little boombox because I had transferred the LP to cassette. Mm-hmm. And I had some manuscript paper and a pencil and my boombox and this, and this cassette tape. And I sat and I started writing down the solo. Um, I had only transcribed a couple solos before that. Um, and I did it just very, very painstakingly, you know, sometimes two or three notes at a time. And I would rewind and make sure that I had them right. And just, you know, just piece by piece. And by the end of the seven weeks, I had this entire solo written down, um, which was, mm. you know, quite a yeah. task, but, but I was, I was happy to do it. And I, and I just really wanted to know what was going on with, with this guy. Um, so after I finished it and I get the wires off my jaw and, and I, uh, I remember I was at my, uh, my, my grand- grandparents' place in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, at the time we had taken a trip out there and I just gotten the wires off and my jaw was really weak. So I had to kind of retrain myself to blow mm-hmm. and I put the horn in my mouth and, and I was doing long tones. And then finally, about a week later, I started feeling stronger and I started playing, I started playing the solo. And of course, you know, you can't play it up to tempo yeah, right away. Right. So I, so I was, I, I was taking it phrase by phrase, but I was so into the feeling of this solo. I loved it so much that I would just sit sometimes and play eight bars of it over and over and over for like an hour, you know, and just, wow. and just let it, and just let it feel good on my horn, you know, until mm-hmm. it could, until I could, ju- it was second nature. And then I'd move on to the next eight bars. And I did this literally for probably about six months. Uh, and this was, well, actually, I did it probably faster than that because I really had it down before I went to college. So it was probably more like a couple months that I w- that I was doing this. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to college, like I I was like the guy that sounded just like Johnny Griffin. <laughs> I I had you know I had a lot of that that uh, that vocabulary under my fingers from just being very very obsessive about getting this stuff together on the horn. Right. Um, yeah. So that's basically the story of it, and it really just informed everything about my playing. It, it changed my sound. It changed my time. It changed my articulation, uh, all for the better. And and yeah. and it just it just made me stronger, you know. Um, yeah. And I and and I didn't stop there, you know. I I did this the same process with Stan Getz. I did the same pro- same process with Coltrane with Sonny Rollins. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a few guys in in my studies that I really went to town with their solos and, and really just ingested and uh, digested uh, that material really, really deeply. Yeah. Do you still have that written out? That you know manuscript? what's funny? I, I just, you know, when I was moving, I'm, I've looked for it and looked for it. I have no idea where it is. I, I have like every other transcription I've ever done. It like went, It's in the ether somewhere. I don't know whether <laughs> one of my students took it. 
I have no idea. I'm hoping that I run across it someday somewhere, but I, I have a feel. I have a funny feeling it's it's gone. So that's a, that's, un, yeah. that's unfortunate. So un, unless yeah. unless it's in, stuck in some folder somewhere. So <laughs> you know. Yeah. Oh, thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah. So I, I know everybody says this, and um, I'm going to say it too. But your for me, your tone, your sound is like it, it's for me. It's my reference of a modern for what I prefer in a modern saxophone sound. Like it's so dark and focused and deep and lush. And even my girlfriend, who's not really a jazz musician, I, I was playing, I had, um, I had your music on and she's like, Oh, that is so smooth. She goes, I don't know what, what music words to use, but it's so like, it's just so smooth. And I know that you worked with John Purcell Right. And he was a big influence on your tone. I wonder if you could share some of what he had you do or, or what kind of things you guys did to develop your sound or, or work on your tone. Sure. Um, yeah, at the time, um, he was having me do um, a lot of embouchure exercises. Uh, he, he, w- he really knew a lot about... Um, the physical aspect of of embouchure and you know what things were on your face were supposed to vibrate and you know um, also he got me into uh, you know making sure that reeds were balanced and stuff like that and mm-hmm. and also the, he had some breathing exercises and talked about posture um, there there was a lot of it that was really really helpful especially I would say the physical things that I got from him. Uh, as far as like, you know, sitting up straight, but being relaxed and, and allowing mm-hmm. your lungs to, to be like a balloon and, and fill up in all directions. And we would work a lot on those kind of things on, on, you know, making sure that the horn was coming into your mouth at the right angle and that you weren't reaching up or down for it. Yeah. You know, very, very fundamental kind of, um, uh, basic physical, uh, changes. A lot, a lot of it had to, a lot of it to me came from sort of Alexander technique and, 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 uh, that type of, uh, physical, uh, sort of discipline. Um, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's interesting because, uh, I had sort of, I had sort of a mixed, um, reaction to that because there, (laughs) there was a time I, I think I, I think I gained a lot of knowledge from John, and actually, I really have to credit John because because he did really work on my sound with me, and my sound improved, and there's no doubt about that. I mean, I carry a lot of those lessons with me, and I will for my life. the 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 downside for for me at now, when I look back on it, is that I, at a certain point, became so obsessed and so concerned about whether my sound was quote unquote perfect that I was a little bit paralyzed at a certain mm. point. And so, you know, I got out of, I got out of school and unless, and I, I would, unless my sound was at, at some sort of like paramount point where, where everything was going exactly perfectly with my read and my mouthpiece and, you know, the stars have mm. to be aligned and everything else, um, I was unhappy and, mm. and, and, it, and I would get really, really depressed and, and I would, I, you know, I felt like I couldn't play unless mm. everything was at its optimum. So, you know, I, 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 I feel like my sound has developed in two different ways. I feel like John gave me this, the, the sort of the tools, the physical tools to know what's going on in the production of the sound. But then after that was over, you know, and I became too perfectionistic, I went to Dick Oates and Dick, uh, kind of told me to 
unwrap all of that stuff and 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 just he said man you sound great but you're too tense just just stick the horn in your mouth and blow you know he said pretend Mm -hmm. you've been watching tv for eight hours and let your jaw drop and just blow and just let it be what it's going to be and so Mm -hmm. i always kind of look at those two guys like they're sort of like flip sides of the coin like i you know part of it was uh, learning how to get the technique, but then the other part of it was letting go and just starting starting to enjoy playing the saxophone again. Um, you know, so I think, you know, with my students, um, I don't focus so much on. I mean, obviously, if there are gross problems, if there are problems where where you know their read is on wrong or or their their posture is really screwed up or there's th- mm. you know things that are obviously. Uh, going wrong physically, I'll I'll correct that, but I don't want to get so involved in their progress of sound that that I uh, start making them think too much about it. Because I really believe that if if you can play in tune, and if you can play in time, and you can play with clarity, the sound will take care of itself. You know, because yeah. I I think there's no one perfect sound on the saxophone. I think it would be boring if everyone everyone were shooting for the same sound. Sure. Uh, I'd rather hear people that have their own individual sounds that with with all of the quirks and weird things in them that are contained in that. So the fact that you know the fact that I kind of came up with this this sound. I mean, certainly is an, is is a testament to my my own perfectionism, I suppose. Mm. Um, but um, you know, I've tried actually over the years to allow myself to have to let the imperfections actually show a little bit more mm. than I did in the past because I don't want to be so cut and dried. I don't want to tie everything with a bow all the time. I think I I, I tend to err in that direction. So. Um, I'm hoping that I become more and more natural as I get older and I just kind of put the reed on and put the mouthpiece on and blow, you know, that's, that, that's what I would like. That's where I would like to be, honestly, is just to be a little bit more carefree. Talk a little bit about that process of kind of retraining yourself to enjoy it. Like I, 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 I heard or read in another interview where you, where you were actually, working with a counselor and she, and she brought that up to you like you never yeah. you, you don't use the word like fun right. and you said that was eye-opening for you but i'm imagining it didn't happen overnight like you just left that session and we're like okay now i'm gonna enjoy myself yeah like what how how did that process unfold to where it is maybe today where it's like more natural to just enjoy it well, it took it took some letting go, you know. I I think I think um, you know for a long time, and I'm not saying that I'm completely you know out of the woods with that either. I mean, I think it's I think it's a lifelong process, and we never really get to some nirvana state with this stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, but I'm better than I used to be. I, I you know I, I I had a therapist for a long time, and and uh, we uh, I would often talk about how tied up my emotions were with my performance um and they were just you know indelibly entwined and 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 um and i i really had to realize at a certain point that you know my worth as a person was not based upon my last solo you know Mm -hmm. um and that's a big lesson that's that's something that takes sometimes takes years to figure out um, that, that, uh, you know, if you, if you play have if you have a bad gig or even if you have, you know, a month of bad gigs, that doesn't, that's not an indictment of who you are as a person. So, um, you know, 
I, I think that I've always suffered from that, that I've always, mm -hmm. I've all, you know, often suffered from depression and, 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 uh, you know, I have worried too much about what other people think of my playing and, and, uh, and let that hamstring me and, and, and let that, uh, color my choices way too much. Um, but I think as I've gotten older, first of all, I realize life is short and, 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 uh, and it's, it's silly for me, first of all, to be chasing after anyone else's ideal that I'm just who I am at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't change that. I've got my set of skills and I need to work with those. You know, I mean, you know, I, there was a long time where I wanted to be Chris Potter. Um, and of course it, every, everyone would love to have those chops, you know, everyone <laughs> right. would love to be that smart, but, but I'm not, you know, and I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm smart, but I'm not that smart, but, but that's okay. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. I'm realizing actually that that's okay. Um, I, I, because really the point is to, um, you know, find the beauty inside yourself, find what's beautiful and say that, you know, I mean, that's, that's to me what music is about. And the older that I get, the less I want to impress people and the more I just want to find beauty in music and, and just play the things that feel good to me. Um, right. that's, that's, that's what I'm looking for. And so, you know, I think, I think there's a tendency for jazz musicians be, uh, oftentimes because maybe we don't get the recognition that we want or, or we're, you know, we're, we, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it can be a thankless road in, in certain ways that, um, sometimes I think people use the music in order to look smart or look, look studied or, you know, to right. show, jump through circus hoops musically, um, which can be cool. But, but I, I think that, uh, the music could use more of an infusion of real, just, less intellectualism and more soul in a way, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, at least that's my opinion. That's, that's yeah. my two cents, but, but I, that's, that's, that's what I'm shooting for. That's my, that's what I'm trying to do is just be honest with myself and play the music that is intrinsic to who I am, you know? Right. Because people don't go to concerts to be impressed. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. I mean, my favorite, my favorite jazz, it makes me feel something, you know? I mean, yeah. I can tell you that, you know, the first time I heard, uh, you know, I remember hearing Miles Davis play for the first time and it was this tune, Supposin', which is on, I think the new Miles Davis quintet with mm. early Coltrane record. And, uh, I was 16 and I heard Miles play the head on Supposin', and it just made me so happy. Uh, just hearing the joy of him playing this melody and it's joyful. It feels, mm -hmm. you feel the buoyancy of it immediately. I mean, it's just like, you, I, I can't help but smile when I listen to that. Um, or I, or I remember another one hearing Cannibal Adderley play with Bill Evans playing, uh, the Gordon Jenkins tune goodbye. Mm -hmm. And that just kills me. I mean, it just slays me the way he plays that ballad. And those are the things that drew me to the music in the first place. It wasn't like, Ooh, what's that guy playing over harmonic major and blah, blah, blah. It's just like, I don't care. That stuff doesn't matter to me at all. I mean, obviously it's nice to have those tools, yeah. but, um, but I want to, you know, I want to feel something when I, when I hear someone play, you know, and yeah. that's, that's really where I want to be. So, yeah, there was a, I mean, we're, we're roughly the same age. So I, I remember like, Sa uh, saxophone i think it's pronounced in saxophonists like there's this in the 80s i th i think we were heavily influenced by like guitar players and like eddie van halen and technique became this coveted thing it's like you know can you play giant steps can you play like brecker not because not in the sense that can you play with the with your 
your heart and soul, Steve right. or Joel, but can you do all these gymnastics? <laughs> right. Yeah. And it and it's almost like it's almost like a pecking order at that point. It's like, oh, oh, that's, you know, this this guy can really shred and you know, it's like, you know, I think that we so much so much uh, emphasis in the jazz world, or maybe the jazz education world, I should say, mm-hmm. really, yep. has been placed uh, on chops and 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 uh, that aspect of playing. Um, sometimes to the detriment of the of the story and the bat and the history and the depth of the music. Um, you know, I, it's 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 been a struggle for me because I come from that world too. I come from the world of jazz education. I can't deny that. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, I was one of those people. I was one of those kids that was chasing after Mike Brecker, chasing after Chris Potter, chasing after the guys that had these incredible chops on the horn. Um, but that you know, and that's great. I mean, that's that's not that there's no worth in that, but th- but it can tend to be a little bit of an empty, lonely pursuit at a certain point because. You can find yourself with all these chops, and then, but what? Are, what's the point? You know, what's the point of right. all these chops if you don't have something to say? Um, yeah. So, you know, I, 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 as I've gotten older, I've just, I've really wanted my playing to be much more lyrical, and 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 I've made actually, actually even made exercises for myself to get myself, to get myself out of playing like that, to get myself away from playing like a machine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have things that I even do with my students that sort of are, are sort of, uh, you know, geared towards that. Can you give an example of that? Well, yeah, my, my, my example that I often have my students do is I call it my Charlie Hayden exercise. Um, and it's, uh, it's based off of, um, this, uh, I love this Charlie Hayden solo on Joshua Redman's, uh, record wish it's, there's a live solo, uh, they play this tune blues for Pat, and it's with Pat Metheny and and uh, Billy Higgins and Charlie Hayden, and Charlie plays this blues solo live at the Vanguard on on blues for Pat. And I was actually there that night. I was I, I was actually there really? live for the recording of it. Yeah, it was a long time ago, uh, but I was present for that. And I remember after seeing the live show, I I remember that solo because it was just, it was just memorable, and the way Pat comps for Charlie. Uh, is incredible. And so when I bought the record, I, I would just listen to that solo over and over and over again because it was such a magic moment, you know. And and after a, a few years, I started thinking to myself, what is it about that solo that I like so much? And I so I started looking at it and listening to it. And um, without even really analyzing it theoretically so much, I came up with some aspects of it that I thought were really cool. I mean, first of all, it's incredibly patient. The way he plays it is patient. Um, it's spacious. Um, it's very logical. Uh, he's not trying to do too much technically. It's very scalar. So there's not like a whole bunch of leaps and crazy stuff in it. Um, it's narrative. It has drama. Um, Mm. he doesn't always resolve everything. Um, it has humor. It has a, it has a cool quote at the end. Um, (laughs) it has all of these cool aspects that really make it this little gem of a story. Mm. And so, what I do with my students is I, I lis- we, we listen to it together and we listen to how Charlie's way of playing, his sort of M.O. when he's, when he's playing the solo. And I said, okay, let's play a blues just like that and let's pretend we're Charlie. Like, what would Charlie do? Like, we all have the what would Jesus do bracelets. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Like, I have a, what would Charlie do, you know? And, and, uh, and so we play sort of in his stylistic realm, but on the saxophone. And what it's done for me, it's, it's really a wonderful exercise, I think. I mean, because it, it really has made me um, put myself into a different 
um, mindset when I play. I know I don't do it all the time, but but sure. I, but it's a good but it's a good way to get yourself out of the typical things that you might do, and it also slows you down in the sense that it makes you really consider what you're playing before you play it, um, and not just play the stuff that's just there by habit. So um, it's a very kind of vocal and almost folky way to play uh, to improvise. So I really like that about it. Um, but yeah, those kind of exercises, and I also have another one that's the Max Roach exercise that, that, that deals with, uh, the rhythmic aspect where you pretend that the saxophone is two sticks, two sticks and a snare drum and that you're Max Roach and that you're just adding a Max Roach, uh, drum solo to pitches. And that's wow. that, that, and that becomes your, your way. So, you know, it's, they're kind of actor exercises in a way. They're sort of acting exercises, like you're inhabiting the style of somebody and just, uh, you know, playing as if you were them. Right. Um, you know, it's kind of fun in that way. I, I, I like it for that reason. That's really cool. I like that too. Yeah. Um, you were talking, you just mentioned the blues and, 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 uh, you talked about the joy again, referencing something you'd said previously, the joy of dedicating yourself to learning the blues. Um, yeah. how, how does one do that? How does one... <laughs> What what? How does one immerse themselves in the blues or really master? Like, where do you begin? Well, I think you begin <laughs> by blues. listening to. You begin by listening to it. I mean, you know, first of all, you know, the blue as Amer as as Americans, you know, <laughs> as as we, as we are. Um, I, I and now really, it's much more of a world music. But but I, I you know, I would say since the blues was born, really born in America, um, you know, uh, we. Uh, um, you know, it's it's really infused all sorts of styles of American music. I mean, it, it's in rock and roll, it's in jazz, it's in straight up blues, you know, music. Um, so, you know, I think that just by the fact that when I was growing up, you know, my parents played like Bill Withers, Bill Withers for me, or they played Stevie Wonder for me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I I heard blues in that music first. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there was a blues element to a lot of that stuff. So, you know, it's, I think subconsciously I was already aware, um, even though I didn't know what it was, um, I, I heard blues and just in the pop music of the day and certain, and certain of the pop music of the day, certain examples. But so what, when it came around to actually hearing jazz for the first time and I, and I heard, you know, um, I mean, first I heard Charlie Parker, but then I heard guys like, um, you know, like King Curtis and Junior Walker and, and, and also Illinois Jaquette and Gene Ammons, you know, uh, those, those were some of my first tenor, uh, heroes that I, that I would listen to. And, you know, and even Sonny Rollins and, and guys like that, where, you know, I heard explicitly, um, people playing the blues, uh, in addition to the bebop language that they were playing, they were actually really, it was, you know, infused with blues, um, and I was very, very attracted to that. So, you know, I think really the first step for anybody, uh, if they want to learn really how to play the blues, is you have to listen to a lot of blues. <laughs> you know, I think you just have, you have to jump in and, and really, really swim around in the blues for a while, listen to it and, 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 and explore it and explore the history of it. Um, you know, I also at a certain point, uh, after I, especially after I graduated college, I, I was in... Uh, 
a real R&B band where I was working every weekend, two, like two or three gigs a weekend in New Jersey with this band called The Fins. And we were playing all like Buddy Guy tunes and, and, and uh, um, you know, James Brown tunes. And, mm -hmm. and you know, and it, it, was, it wasn't a jazz band at all. It was really a blues band. So, um, you know, and, and I had to basically in that band, it was really good for me because I couldn't get away with playing jazz in that band. It would have sounded stupid. So, right. so I, I had to play straight blues like every weekend for like 10 years basically. And that's how I was making my rent. Um, and it was, you know, it really made me strong because I had to develop these blues solos in front of audiences that were not. Intelle I mean, not that, not that they weren't intellectual, but you know what I mean. Not yeah, yeah. not not jazz egghead audiences. You know what I mean. So yeah. so they were they they wanted to hear something that would make them holler, and and basically I had to really figure out how to how to deal in that world, um, and uh, it was good for me because it really did start to inform my jazz playing as well, and I think that was really an invaluable experience for me was to 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 really have to do that to really you know on the fly figure out uh, how to really make my blues pl playing compelling, you know, in a situation yeah. that I couldn't get away with just playing jazz, you know. Right. That's cool. So, yeah. Here's Joel playing live at Smalls in New York City with Cyril Ame's band doing the Cole Porter tune, Love for Sale. also talk about lyricism and forward motion and this is something I also admire in your playing is how lyrical it is mm -hmm. what what advice can you give on developing that aspect of lyr that lyrical quality that forward motion mm -hmm. well again I, th I think it's sort of tied into what I was talking about with Charlie Hayden you know I've, I'm always very attracted to the musicians who really play vocally in a way and meaning that um you know what they play is not just arbitrary so um you know when i listen to the really really great impro improvisers or the ones that i like the most there's there's sort of a you know if you're talking about horn players or singers there's a cry in their sound there's something about it that um where you hear the the humanness of what they're doing and and you hear um 
you know, someone trying to tell you a story and not mm. just, you know, pushing the buttons on their horn. So, so I really value that a lot. You know, I value um, being able to hold a note and make that note compelling. Um, you know, one of the things that I'm always telling my students is, is, you know, we get so caught up sometimes in eighth notes, eighth notes, eighth notes all the time, uh, where it's just like, you know, because we're, we love bebop, but, but really, you know, we should be really thinking about how we shape things and, 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 you know, are we actually, um, saying something, you know, literally mm -hmm. saying something vocally to the people that are listening to us. So I, I love singers. Um, I have some favorite singers that I've, emulated and learned from you know i love shirley horn i love billy holiday mm -hmm. i love carmen mccray um you know i love sarah vaughn um you know there's there's so many uh you know singers billy eckstein you know that you know that that um uh that i you know modern and and uh, uh classic that i've learned from so Mm -hmm. Those kind of things where, where especially if I'm playing a ballad, I'm really thinking about the words and I'm, and I'm really trying to sing the song to people um, mm -hmm. when, I, when I play. And I think people feel that, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, I can tell you that also that when I, when I play, uh, especially when I play a ballad and, and there's time, there's, there's more of a patient feel to it, um, you'll see me um, almost slow dancing with my horn when I, when I, when I play a ballad and that sounds kind of corny in a way, but it's, but it's pretty, it's pretty earnest actually in my case. Mm. Like I, I actually will really, really feel like I'm, I'm in a dance mm. when I'm playing a ballad and, and I will stay there and just really feel that two feel where, where you really feel like you're on the dance floor and, and it's, and it's romantic and it's, and it's, mm. it's in intimate, you know? And people, people really, really feel that. It, they feel the simplicity, simplicity of it. They feel the, uh, the genuine emotion of it when, when you're not just, you know, um, playing at the music, but you actually are inside the music and you're playing the tune for what it is and making and telling the story of the song. Yeah. Um, and getting your ego sort of out of the way. Um, and you lose yourself in the beauty of that. And that's, that's what's the most impressive. When you hear someone doing that where, where it's not about, look at me, look at me. It's more right. about... Um, this tune is beautiful and I'm going to show you that I love this song. And right. that's the, that's really the deeper emotion. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm imagining that playing a lot with Jane Monheit and being on the road with such an amazing vocalist had to, that had some of that had to rub off on you as well. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, Jane, Jane's a virtuoso. I mean, you know, Jane hears everything. She's got perfect pitch. She's got this beautiful sound. I mean, she's, she's, she's just, a, she's a remarkable talent. You know, she's got, uh, just, she's so, she's got such facility as, as a vocalist. And, um, you know, I mean, it's really pretty astounding. Yeah. And, you know, w what was great about, uh, for me with Jane was it was a chance for me to really sort of melt my sound as an accompanist into what she was doing because she really was the leader of that band. I mean, she, mm -hmm. she you know, it was her, uh, you know, as, as the head and, 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 you know, it was her singing the songs the way that she wanted to sing them. So I had to find my space, you know, I, mm -hmm. I had to find my space within that to really sort of being, be the set, you know, the, the, the setting for her diamond in a way, yeah. you know, I wanted to, yeah. I wanted to be there as, as a, a supportive figure. And so what I did was I really figured out what was going to complement things in the moment and whether it was, you know, finding the rhythms that she was singing and finding harmonies underneath her, or whether it was playing a counter line or whatever it, whatever it was. 
And so we really developed this relationship where, you know, I was out front with her and I would just find these things that mm. would, you know, sort of be the right counterpoint without overshadowing what she was doing. And, and that was my role. And I really enjoyed that role. I, I've my, for my time in that band, I learned a lot. Um, just playing that much. I mean, we were out on the road for a few years, sometimes four, five, six months out of the year. Mm. Um, and that was really an, a tremendous experience because there's no replacing the experience of being out with the band and playing that much mm. in a row. I mean, you, you get really, really good, you know, I mean, yeah. that you just, you know, the band can't help but develop. Um, so yeah, that was a special time for me for certain. What, did you feel like when you got that gig, like was, was that one of the first gigs where you're like, wow, this is, this is happening. Like I'm actually, I can do this. Well, yeah, <laughs> as a pro, I mean, pro well, musician. Cer certainly, certainly business wise. I mean, it was yeah. the first time that a lot that any of us in that band had really worked to that degree. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and just had that much work. I mean, I remember getting the first itinerary and just being like, holy cow, this is, this is, uh, unbelievable. You know, we'd back then it was before you just had an E schedule. Like they, they actually would give us a book of plane tickets before the tour and you would hand, they would hand it to you and it'd be like an inch thick, you know, of plane tickets. And it was just like, Oh man, I can't believe this because we'd be gone for weeks on end. So, and a lot of times we'd be taking like two flights a day there. We'd go, we'd fly into the back into the hub and then we'd fly to the new city and then we fly back to the hub and fly into the new city. And we did that for weeks. Mm. So we got real used to airports at that point. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, at that point it felt good just to be really useful, you know, where, where, you know, we had all of these jobs and we were going all of these different places, seeing all of these different towns all over the world. And yeah, I mean, that's kind of the dream, really. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it mm -hmm. was, it was a great gig, uh, while it lasted. And, and I, you know, I really look forward, I look forward, I look back, um, fondly on, on, on those experiences because it was just, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a very special time in our lives for sure. Yeah. I'm just imagining that there, you know, on a journey, the journey as a, professional musician you know not everybody makes it and and those who do they get clues along the way they get they get like okay this is this isn't you know this is working i can i can go another step i can go another step and then sure you know i'm imagining something like that experience is like a big confirmation of like okay yeah, I would say, I would say so. You know, I, I think, um, it's interesting because there, there have certainly been times in my career, in my life where, you know, around January and my parents could tell you this, where I'd call them and I would say, I can't do this anymore. I have no gig. I have one gig in January. I'm not going to make it, you know? Mm -hmm. And they would, they would sort of like calmly and patiently say, just, you know, just stick it out. Just hold on. It's, mm -hmm. it'll get better. It always does. This, this time of year is always slow, you know? Yeah. And, and I'd flip out for a while and then something would come along to kind of save my butt and I, and I would, I would get through. And then of course, you know, once, you know, March and April rolled around, I'd have more work. Um, so, you know, that, that's been sort of a steady build from the very first, you know, from, uh, you know, I got out of college and then, like I said, I was doing these 
I would just go into New Jersey crashing on this drummer's couch, you know, um, for the blues band. And I was playing two seventy gig, $70 gigs a weekend. And that's how I made my rent, you know, mm -hmm. at yeah. first that plus weddings, plus doing whatever little jazz gigs I was doing. And I could make, kind of make it through. Yeah. Um, you know, I was also living with other dudes, you know, I was splitting the rent with other people for a long time. Um, but yeah, slow, you know, little by little, the gigs started getting, getting better. I mean, you know, before Jane, it, I was in Matt Wilson's quartet, um, and we were touring a bit and, and, um, you know, so I started doing different road tours with different people and, and that just sort of built, kept building on itself. And, um, you know, each gig would lead to another gig. Yeah. Um, and so I think it happened very, very naturally. And, and, uh, you know, I certainly wasn't any sort of overnight success. Yeah. You know, I was never like the flavor of the month really, you know, I mean, I, people knew me and respected me, but I was never like, you know, the Josh Redman of the day or the Chris Potter of the day or what, what, what have you. Um, but maybe that's kind of good in a sense, you know, I look back on it. I mean, at the time, obviously I, I would have loved to have been, you know, a jazz star, but, but really, um, I think when I look at it now, I'm kind of glad that, uh, you know, that I had the chance to develop without being sort of thrown to the, the, the wolves of the record industry and, and just being, you know, yeah. eaten up and spit out by, you know, Blue Note or Verve or whoever. Um, because I think that could have easily happened. You know, mm. I, 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 I saw that happen to some of my peers and, and I'm glad that my build has been kind of a steady build and, and that I've, it's been kind of organic in a way. Yeah. I want to get back to the duo, you know, mm -hmm. where we started talking about duos, and it it feels to me like you have a very strong affinity for for duos. I mean, probably going back to you and Brad when you were uh, younger and growing up mm -hmm. together and playing those gigs. Um, do you is that true for you? You really have an like is that a special combination? The duo. Yeah, I, th I think it is. There, there is something about that. Um, you know, it also obviously depends on who you're playing with, too. You know, uh, duos can be either successful or or they can be they can be not successful, mm -hmm. uh, depending on what what happens. But you know, if it generally, if I'm with a an empathetic musician, um, regardless of their style. Um, you know, they could, they could be really chopsy or maybe not so chopsy or, or they could, you know, come from a fusion or a rock and roll realm, or they could mm -hmm. come from a jazz realm or maybe even a really traditional jazz realm like, where it's very old fashioned, uh, style. So, you know, I think that one of my strengths is that I, I, I will bring myself and be malleable to situations. Um, I kind of like that. I, 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 I like so many different kinds of music that when I, when I come to something, um, I really try and be as open-minded as I possibly can. And I, and I, and I don't try and have too many expectations or agendas mm -hmm. when I come into a situation. So I think that when, you know, when I'm playing duo with someone, I really am thinking about talking to them, having a conversation with them and not necessarily about, Oh, how do I get my solo off in this, in this situation? I really, I'm much more interested in the dialogue that happens mm. between us uh, because that's going to be the greater expression, uh, ultimately, mm -hmm. if, if you, if I'm able to allow, um, you know, some space and allow, um, the other person to have their say, 
um, and think about the gestalt or the or the totality of what's going on in, instead of the you know the uh, singularity of my style. Yeah, um, that's the thing that I I want the most. And and so yeah, I, I would say that I do have a soft spot for those situations. Also, the fact that there's so much space to be had in that situation. There's sonically, it's very very free, mm. um, and it's very transparent as well. Uh, most of the time. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I have an affinity for that for sure. And, and, you know, I love, I loved playing duo with Brad, but you know, I've had other chances to play duo with, with, with people that also were, were really, really fun. And, and some, you know, I remember playing duo concerts with Ari Honig on drums and we would play just the two of us, you know, um, at, at different gigs and we had a blast, you know, and it was amazing. Um, so yeah, so I do like playing duo a lot. Did you were you influenced by I'm sure you were. The Stan it makes me think about the Stan Getz, Kenny Barron Right. That record, which is one of my all time favorite Stan Getz. It's just the oh, two people, of them. Yeah, people time is incredible. I mean that's that's amazing. And you know, it, I would say that that era of Stan too was a big influence on me because it was really the first Stan that I had heard. I mean, the first Stan records I had were Serenity and Anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um which which leads to why I did that record with Rufus Reed and 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 Victor Lewis and Kenny. Uh, because that was his rhythm section at the time, mm-hmm. and I was just so enamored of of Stan's playing and and those records in general. I loved that rhythm section, um, you know. And yeah, certainly, I would say especially around the time that I was making the duo record with Brad, Stan was a big, big influence at that point. I mean, mm-hmm. you can kind of hear it. Yeah. And and uh, you know, I had transcribed some Stan and 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 really immersed myself especially in the recordings with Jimmy Rainey that he did those were those were a big influence on me so yeah certainly um Stan was another one of those people like Johnny Griffin like Coltrane like Sonny Rollins that mm-hmm. that uh, like Mike Brecker yeah uh that had a just a really indelible influence on me what was that like for you I mean these are your heroes and you've invited them to make a recording with you uh give us a snapshot yeah. of in the studio how how was that well, it, you know, uh, I, I kind of had to step up in a way. I mean, I, it was, it was, it was. First of all, I, I was very lucky and grateful because I had, uh, you know, my 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 friend uh, Colin Negrich was was the uh, uh, sort of the the um, along with Anak Cohen founded Anzic Records, and uh, I was able to be kind of a part of that family, and they they made it possible mm. to make this recording, which I never would have been able to make without the financial help. Um, but, uh, you know, once that was sort of in place and we were able to get all the musicians on board, um, I remember, you know, they all came over to, uh, the rehearsal studio and, 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 uh, we, you know, I had these charts for them and, and we started playing through them and, and I just, I had to be a leader, you know, I had, I had to step up and I had to say, Hey, Kenny Barron, this is how this song goes, you know, Hey, Victor Lewis, uh, we're going to come in at the A section. And after, you know, after the first maybe five or 10 minutes of feeling like having some butterflies about telling my heroes what, you know, what the roadmaps were for these charts, I got over it fast. And I, and then it just became another rehearsal, you Mm -hmm. know, because you realized, I realized fast, oh, these are just guys. These are guys that are here to do a job. They're getting paid very well, you know, and, and, uh, they're here to do their best for me, you know? Um, so I think they were able to really demystify it pretty, pretty quickly for me. 
Um, and you know, I'll always, actually, I have a very soft spot for Victor Lewis Mm. because Victor, um, you know, came into that situation. All of them took it seriously, but he was really, he showed real curiosity. He would say, man, what are you thinking here? And I, I, you know, I like this part. Like what is, what's going on here? How do you want me to play this? Like he was really, really interactive with me. Um, and I'll, I'll always have a soft spot for Mm. Victor for the fact that he just brought his whole self to that recording and, and, um, you know, just really was, uh, you know, um, invested in it. Ah. So, um, yeah, so that's, that was great. And then what was funny is that I got the flu. (laughs) We had two days in the studio and right after we rehearsed, I was like sick as a dog with the flu in the studio. Uh, so I made that whole record and I was pretty sick, but, but, uh, so I don't, you know, I just remember, you know, my girlfriend at the time was so, was so helpful cause she brought me orange juice and, mm. you know, so I have to, I have to give a shout out, a shout out to Nadia Nordhaus for, uh, uh, for taking care of me during that entire process. Wow. But, uh, but it was, it was just such a special memory and, and getting to play with those guys was just a dream. And I, bet. I, I, you know, that was a very special record to make. Yeah. What is your preparation like for like, either for your own project or you get called to do a a session like how do you how do you begin preparing for those um well first you know first i think you have to figure out you know what what songs you're gonna play obviously i mean it depends on on what the um you know what the format and the and the uh the outline of, of how the record's going to go, um, as a, as a suite, you know, I, I think of those, you know, great records really are like great suites. They, mm-hmm. you know, they have a beginning, a middle and an end and a contour to the set. And so, um, you know, that's the first thing is picking material. Um, like this last record that I did that hasn't come out yet is the first one that I've done where it's the major- uh, it's entirely original material that this one that's not out yet. I did a trio record with, uh, Ernesto Cervini and Dan Loomis, uh, bass drums and, and saxophone. Mm-hmm. And I wrote seven of the tunes and, and the other guys, uh, uh, you know, contributed three. Um, and that was the concept of that record. I wanted, I wanted to make a record of all original material. So I, you know, step one to me is, is deciding what's the, what, what is the thrust of this recording going to be? Like, what are the, what, what songs do I want to, do I really want to put on it? And, and what's, what's going to be sort of the point of this instead of being, you know, sort of haphazard about, oh, let's play this song and let's play that song. And there are a lot of records like that, which are just sort of like jam session records. But the ones that I think really last and the ones that I I like um, are the records that have some thought put into them in that way. So I would say, you know, deciding which songs, then making sure your charts are really clear, you know, uh, coming up with intros and endings that work. you know, choosing the musicians that you know will really work in that situation for what you're aiming for. Um, you know, choosing a good studio where you feel comfortable, choosing an engineer that you trust. Um, and then just being relaxed, allowing yourself enough time. You know, it's not, it's an, it's not, sometimes it's not always a luxury that everyone has, but it's mm. nice to have a couple days in the studio to do something. Um, because sometimes it's tough if you feel under the gun um, to get a, an entire record done in a, in a day, even though that's how I've done many of them, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's not as easy, you yeah. know, so it's a lot to get done in one day. So I, I prefer to have a couple days and, and be a little bit more relaxed about it. So well, those, those are the things that I would say how I, how I prepare. What's the, uh, this is called, this is the bright side, right? This is the album that's, uh, 
Yeah, the bright side. Oh, did I? T- I must have talked about it somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the bright side. The bright side is the record, and it's 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 being uh, sort of mixed and mastered at the moment. So okay. Yeah. I hope I didn't let the cat out of the bag. I think you. No, 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 no not at all. Before. No, people, people know. No, they've heard. I've played those songs live already many, many okay. times. So it's you know people are realize that it's going to happen. So once again, here's Joel along with Brad Mildow with their rendition of "East of the Sun." standards for a second and dig uh-huh. in a little bit you had said that learning when you learn a standard you learn the head first mm-hmm. baseline second harmony third mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you source it like you go to the source right and i'm wondering if you could like do you for each of those steps are you like memorizing the head and then are you memorizing the baseline from a recording are you creating your own baseline you know how does that work um i i think what's happening is is uh you know it depends on the source that i'm getting it from i mean some songs i've actually learned from a person in person um i would say most songs that i've learned i find uh i I try and find a clear version of them In in other words i try and find a version that's not so far away from the composer's original intent where it hasn't been arranged out of recognition you know so i wanna i wanna find something you know, uh, sort of a, uh, as straight ahead a performance of a standard as I possibly can. And uh, mm-hmm. often that's a vocal performance. Often mm-hmm. that'll be like a, you know, finding an Ella Fitzgerald version or, yeah. uh, you know, just an early version of a song. If, it, if you're talking about the American songbook. So, um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm learning the melody first and I, and I'll really try and follow and, and be true to what's going on and I'll create a lead sheet for myself. I'll, I'll write out the melody um, and then after that, um, you know, I mean, now I can kind of do it all in one because I hear things quicker than I used to, sure. but, but, but in the, but in the past, uh, when I wasn't as familiar with harmonies, I would have to get the root of each chord 
and I'd put it under the melody and I'd create a chart and I would say, okay, here's, here's the, here's what the bass is doing. Here's what the melody is doing. And then I'd have to go through and, and sometimes, you know, sit at the piano and say, is now what quality is that? Is that a, you know, is that a dominant chord with, with, uh, alterations or is that, a, you know, is, is that a sus chord or is that this, or is that that? And I would fill in the blanks. Um, so, you know, it, I, I kind of did it piecemeal, you know, and, and, and then it was a matter of really repetition and playing it in real time, either with play along or do, going to a jam session mm-hmm. and playing it with friends or, you know, or going out to a jam session and playing at it at a public jam session. So right. I did a lot of that where, um, I would, you know, memorize a melody at home and then it would sort of gestate and I would learn it m- more deeply just by playing it over and over and over again in different situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and also playing it with players that would really know those tunes. And, and I would sort of learn by osmosis as well. I would listen, you know, I remember playing with Larry Goldings and Peter Bernstein and Bill Stewart, uh, when they had the trio at, mm. at Augie's back in the day, <laughs> um, which is su- such an incredible trio and they mm. would play standards and they would just sound so beautiful on everything, but they, you know, they would play standards that I didn't know. And I, I remember one specific night they called, um, Larry, I, I waited until like the third set and I had my horn and I was always waiting to sit in, you know? <laughs> Um, and Larry said, okay, Joel, come on, come on up and play, play a song, you know? And so I'd, I'd, I'd say, well, what, what do you want to play? And he'd say, well, we're going to play, will you still be mine? And do you know that? And I'd say, and I'd say, no, I don't, I don't know. And he's, and he's, he, I remember him saying to me, well, listen, I'll play the melody and you listen to the melody and, uh, I'll play the first solo and then just, you know, just try and hear it and play your solo. And mm-hmm. then, if, you know, whatever you can catch on the way out, you know? Um, and I, that's how I learned that song was, was by jumping in and just, you know, using my ears and learning it on the fly, you know, so those experiences were really invaluable. But, um, but short of that, I would say, you know, people need to go to the recordings and go to the, go to the source and it's all that knowledge is there to be had. It just, it just really, really takes the wherewithal to, to really sit with it and mm-hmm. to check your work and, and, and just, you know, little piece by little piece, get it down. I mean, it's painstaking, but that's the way all of us should be learning the history of the music and learning standards. It's just, you know, little chunks. You got to do it in little pieces, one measure at a time. Do you practice playing bass lines on your horn for standards? Yeah. You know, you know what I, you know what I like doing actually? I like playing tenths. You know, I, I like, I oh, like wow. messing around with, with, with tenths, the, the inner, the mm-hmm. interval of a tenth. Because uh, they really sound great on on the horn, almost almost like a Bach cello suite or something like that. I like playing harmony in that way, um, and uh, um, you know, so that's that's uh, that's something that I do a lot. Is, is yeah, I will play bass lines like that, and I'll play through a standard bass line, uh, almost like playing double stop, like, like a bass player would play double stops. I'll play it on the sure. horn. Obviously, I'm not playing two notes at once. <laughs> right. but I'm playing the, the the fundamental and then a harmony on top and sure. going through standards like that. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. How are you liking your super balanced action? Oh, <laughs> I love it. It's, I mean, it's, it's actually, I had a, my friend Charles Owens, who's a great tenor player. Uh, he, you know, I've been putting up a video a week on my website and on Facebook, um, sort of, you know, trolling for lessons too. And, <laughs> and, uh, um, I, uh, he, I've been playing this new setup, you know, Boston sax shop mouthpiece and reads and, 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 uh, um, and ligature, got to give a shout out to Jack Vanukin for those. And, um, you know, on my super balance that I got about a year ago and it's been such a shift. It's been a real change from my Mark six because the feeling out of, of it is completely different. Um, feeling, do you mean little... the fingerboard or just the sonically or all of it? 
Well, more sonically than the fingerboard. I mean, the fingerboard I got used to fairly quickly. Sonically, it's a, and also physically, it's a different feeling. It's a little more resistant mm-hmm. than my six. Um, it's a little softer and more rounded than my sixes sound. It's a little bit more, you know, it's got a little bit more of an ethereal quality to it. And, you know, my friend Charles uh, Owens uh, wrote me the other night. He texted me. He said, man, I, I like what that horn is doing for you. It's, it's making you think of new ideas. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's get, putting you into different realms. Mm. And I think that's true. I think the, the, just the physical aspect of playing something different after playing pretty much the same horn for, you know, 30 years um, uh, has, um, it's been inspiring in a different way. I mean, it's, it's a different sound. It's a yeah. different feel. And so I'm making friends with it and it's been really refreshing. It's just been a refreshing change for a little while. So I, I yeah, I'm really into it. And plus it's just a gorgeous horn. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a beautiful sounding horn and I, and I really, really love it. Yeah. I have a balanced action, um, that I love the tone of I've yet to play. Well, actually I just played a brand new Selmer series three. That was the first horn I've ever played that I felt compared, uh, sonically to, huh. um, my balance section. My balance section is a little pitchy, and the fingerboard's right. not, you know. <laughs> but that's what's great about them, though. I love, I love that stuff. That's the good stuff. I love, I love that they're all quirky and yeah. weird. You know, I mean, there's, there's something about those old horns that, you know, the the sometimes the, even the the idiosyncrasies of them make them even more interesting. I think sometimes. So sure. Yeah. yeah. Um. So what are you what are you practicing right now? Like what what are you working on? You, you don't have really any gigs, but what are what what are you trying to figure out in your own playing, or what are you, what's what's the itch you're scratching right now? Um, uh, I think for the most part, when I'm playing, I'm I've been searching for, um, I've been pl- I've been taking the vocabulary that I know, and I've been sort of uh, examining it from all sides, and 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 breaking it up, and 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 you know, uh, finding ways to improvise where um, I play melodies that maybe I are uncommon with what I would usually play. So, so I've been, I've been really looking for new melodic pathways and, and, and utilizing rhythm and utilizing space, mm-hmm. uh, and trying to play things that are more surprising to me and, and maybe not, uh, what, what, not the habits that I've always built up. So I've been trying to break sort of some old habits, uh, mm-hmm. uh, as to, as to just being, uh, being in a harmonic situation and having a knee jerk reaction to that harmonic situation and playing the thing that I always play. And I'm trying to find new things to always play <laughs> right you know, trying to find new cliches for joel sure. you know yeah, so yeah. so trying to find new things that that uh, excite me melodically and 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 also just to you know to use more space and to have the shape of my solos be interesting and yeah. and just you know it's it's always an exploration for me i i, I want to explore i want to be a, an improvisational sonic explorer that's what i'm trying to do <laughs> i love that practice <laughs> yeah that's what i'm looking for what is can you walk us through a typical practice routine for you or like um, a session? Uh, well, there's not much to it. I mean, I, basically these days, you know, I mean, there was a time, there was a time in my life, you know, early on where, where, um, you know, obviously I was transcribing solos. I was memorizing solos. I was doing licks in different keys. I, you know, yeah. I was working on my time. I was working on my eighth note feel, working on my sound. 
you know, all of those things are really, really important and they, you, they can't be skipped over. Um, but now at this point, I'm not so concerned. I'm not as concerned with saxophone technique now at age 51. It's, it's, you know, that's sort of, it's pretty much under my wing at the, at mm -hmm. this point. Um, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I really need more crazy chops to show <laughs> off anymore. So th that's not the, that's not the problem. So my practice routine now generally is I'll pick just a given song because I still love playing tunes. That that's probably always going to be the case for me. I'm not really a free musician. I'm not really you know mm -hmm. an avant-gardist. I'm sort of a traditionalist in that way. So I, I'll often just pick a set of chord changes, whether it's the blues or rhythm changes or or a given standard, and um, I will slow it down. Or also sometimes I'll just blow through it for ten or twenty choruses, just a cappella. Mm -hmm. And then after I do that, I'll sort of realize the parts of the song that aren't as strong or, or that, I, that I have limited uh, ideas about. Mm -hmm. And I will look at that part of the song. I'll look at the part of the, 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 part of the harmony that is difficult for me or, or, or the least comfortable for me. And I'll really isolate that and I'll find ways through that, that part of the harmony. I'll, I'll find, you know, three or four ways to, to navigate it. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's generally my practice routine. Um, but it's, it changes by the day. I mean, there are times when, you know, I used to do this exercise with my students too, where I would, I would say, okay, um, this exercise is just about improvising and utilizing a small idea and really having it be the seed for this improvisation. And there are no other rules except that we're, you're only allowed to uh, improvise for two minutes. That's the one parameter. Now, it's not about looking at the clock for two minutes. It's about whatever mean, two minutes means to you subjectively in your head. So it's the idea of playing for two minutes, mm. but you have to make uh, a statement in two minutes with maybe three notes, you know? Right. Um, so so the, the, I, I did a lot of those type of exercises. A lot of my practicing is more imaginative than just technical. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's thinking about, uh, you know, how do I want to do this? You know, how do I want to approach this? It's not about oh I have to get to this lick in twelve keys today. Sure. I mean, some people work. Some people work like that. I've never really been that guy. Yeah. Um. I mean, I've certainly done some t a lot of technical practice, but at this point, I'm not. That's not who I am at this point. I'm. I'm just more interested in, in finding, you know, expressive ways to get through a form. Right. Is really what I'm more more concerned with. So that's what I'm. That's what I'm doing when I practice pretty much. Cool. Uh, what's inspiring you these days? Where do you draw inspiration? Oh, every, everywhere. I mean, I, you know, and it's not just about music either. I mean, I, I, I read and, you know, I, I, I actually, um, of course I'm going to forget her name now. Um, I've been reading, um, uh, it's, her name is Dr. Egger, E-G-E-R. She's a, a psychologist that, uh, Survive the Holocaust. Oh, wow. And uh, there's a book that I just read, uh, her story, which is called The Choice. Um, and, and just an incredible book that I, that I just read. And, and um, uh, so, I, you know, a lot of it comes from, from books. Um, I also read uh, Neil Gaiman's novel, American Gods, which is a TV series that I haven't seen yet, but, the, but I just finished that novel as well. Um, so, you know, I, I like, uh, reading, I watch, you know, I watch television, sure. I, you know, I, I, I enjoy movies. Like I'm a, I'm a big movie fan. I'm a big sci-fi nerd awesome. and, um, I'm a big Hitchcock nerd. And, you know, I like, um, I like mysteries and, um, 
You know, I, I think my inspiration comes from a lot of different places. You know, it's, I, I love art and I, you know, I love going to see exhibits and, um, and, and mu musically, I love a lot of different things too. I mean, it's, you know, it's not just about jazz, you know, yeah. I, I will often, often listen to Stravinsky or I'll listen to Eric Satie or I'll listen to Donny Hathaway or, or I'll listen to, you know, um, James Taylor or Joni <laughs> sure. Mitchell or, or, or outcast, you know, or, you know, I mean, I mean, there's, there's, I, you know, I love hip hop. I love, I love a lot of those guys. There's a cool new, there's a cool, not so new, but there's a cool rapper that I really like uh, named Aesop Rock, um, who I think is, uh, not Aesop Rocky, but Aesop Rock. There's two guys. Okay. Aesop Rock is this guy who's like this very erudite sort of rapper who's like got this really interesting stories that he tells mm. when he, when he raps, just fascinating, you know? Cool. Um, and so... You know, all of those things are really, really inspiring to me. I, I, you know, I think it's, I think it's good to just be human and, and, and admit the things that you like and, and, and just, you know, just check it out. Just be curious and, and, uh, you know, also don't be afraid to, you know, jump into something that maybe you're not sure of and that's new to you and maybe unfamiliar. So yeah. I, I really try and be like that. I try and, you know, allow myself to have, to be open to those new experiences and, and, uh, find inspiration there as well. Nice. Uh, what are you listening to these days? What, what's on your, uh, device or whatever um, you listen to? Jazz wise. <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, jazz wise, um, I would say, you know, if, if we're going to sort of talk about it, you know, in, in, in a, in a focused sort of way, jazz wise, I would say, you know, I, I've been listening to a lot of Lester Young. Mm -hmm. Um, I love listening to piano players. I've been listening to Paul Blay. I've been listening to Ahmad Jamal. Um, you know, I've been, um, you know, it's sort of all over the all over the board. I listened to Chris Potter's new record where he plays all the instruments. That's that's pretty cool. Wow, um, <laughs> amazing. Yeah, that's yeah, it's quite quite an amazing record. Um, Which Lester Young you are know, you? Uh, is there any particular well, record? My favorite, my favorite Lester. My, I mean, I love all of it, but but my favorite uh, Lester tends to be with Basie. Like I love I love those big band records. You know, with with Basie and, um, you know, those are becoming more and more of an influence for me. Um, so I really, I really like that. Um, you know, I, I, you'll always find me going back to listen to a Sonny Rollins record or, or, you know, sometimes even, you know, Warren Marsh or, uh, I mean, there's so many, jo Joe Henderson yeah. is someone that I always, always go back to as well. Like I, whenever I was in a bad mood, my, you know, my ex-girlfriend Nadia would always say, um, put on a Joe Henderson record <laughs> or put on Duke Ellington and you'll feel better in about an hour. And she's always right. You know, That's so, so awesome. I would, I would do that. And, and, um, uh, so yeah, Joe Henderson is always a huge influence as well. So, you know, um, I'm, I'm always looking at new records too. Like there, 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 there are always things coming down the pike that I love. I, I love this, this, um, uh, saxophonist, Stephen Riley, um, who's been around for quite a while, but he's, he's an amazing, uh, player as well. I like Dana Stevens, um, you know, among the new guys, I, I, I like Stacy Dillard, um, you know, there's, there's quite a few, and, and obviously, you know, there's Ben Wendell and Chris Cheek and Seamus Blake and you yeah. know, Josh Redman. And I mean, there's just, there's so <laughs> many so guys many, out right? there that are just incredible, mm. you know? Um, and of course I'm going to, I'm going to leave out, you know, 50 that yeah, I also love that I'm course. not going to remember right now, but, um, but it's that, the, that, those are the things that inspire me. I love hearing composers too. You know, I love Omer Avital's writing. I love, um, Kurt Rosenwinkel's writing. I love Guillermo Klein's writing. I love Maria Schneider's writing. Mm. Um, 
you know, I play in the Daphnis Prieto big band. He's an unbelievable, incredible force. Um, you know, there's just so many people out there writing great music and improvising. Um, and, and I just, I love all of it. I mean, I, you know, there are things that I, that I feel more of an affinity for, Yeah. but just the fact that there's just the fact that there's still, in spite of everything that's going on in the world, that there are still musicians who are just creating on such a high level is, is, is really inspiring. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, if you could go back to when you first, if you could go back in time to 19 year old Joel going to New York city in New York city, what, if you could sit down with him and have a conversation and not, this isn't about regret, but, um, if you could sit down with him and tell him anything, what would, what would you want to tell him? Um, you know, boy, it's tough. I, I used to, you know, that's always a fantasy is <laughs> if you could tell yourself, you know, uh, what to, you know, give yourself advice. You know, the thing is, I'm not sure that even if I were able to magically go back to that time and talk to myself that I would have listened to me even, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So, uh, you know, I mean, maybe it, it's a little bit of a moot point, but yeah. I, you know, obvi- obviously I would have liked to have, uh, told myself, um, you know, maybe, maybe not to, maybe not to soothe myself in unhealthy ways so often, you know, mm-hmm. um, with cigarettes or alcohol or, or too much food, mm-hmm. you know, um, those, those were, those were struggles for me, you know, um, yeah. that, that, uh, you know, because I was, you know, I had, I had some depression and, and I was sort of medicating myself in the wrong ways for, for quite a while. Um, and I didn't really seek the right kind of help for a long time. So mm-hmm. I think I would have told 19 year old me to, to learn how to be a little bit more gentle with myself in, mm-hmm. in the sense of forgiving myself for my, you know, for my, um, shortcomings and my, and my, my faults, um, and not just, uh, you know, sort of trying to blot those out with, uh, by, you know, drinking a lot of beer or, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that would have been, that would have been a good message. But again, you know, I'm, I'm not sure anyone at 19 years old is really, really ready to hear, hear that sure. message. I think it, I think I learned that in due time and, and, um, you know, I'm still, I'm still learning that. I mean, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm much further along in, I think, you know, being wiser than I was. Um, but it's, you know, it's always a work in progress and, and, um, you know, I think you have to, at a certain age, you have to, um, kind of try and see the forest for the trees and realize that the, that the long, the gratification of, of living in the longer term and having a a longer, healthy life, uh, is more important than the instant gratification of, you know, feeling good for a moment and then not feeling great immediately after. So, you know, that's, that's, that's the thing is, is just trying to be, you know, learn how adults live and, 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 you know, adopt some of the healthy habits that are there, you know? So, you know, cooking more and eating better and moving your body every day and those kind of things. Those are the things that didn't come naturally to me, but I'm trying to implement now more than I used to. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's a, sure. That's a vulnerable topic. And, and, um, that was great. Thank I appreciate that. Um, where can people find you? Um, if they want to learn more or get in, get in touch with you, 
Yeah, well, the best the best way is through through uh, the website, which is www.joelfrom.com, and uh, so it's uh, J O E L F R A H M dot com, and uh, there's a contact page there, and also you'll be able to see you know the latest video of the week, and and once we start working again, you'll see my schedule, and all of those kind of things, and also for any record releases that are that are mm -hmm. there. Um, I'm also on Facebook, um, and I, I'm on, I'm on Instagram, but I don't post on Instagram as, as often as I should. I'm still kind of like yeah. an old guy in that, in that sense. But, um, but yeah, the website is the best place to, to find me. And, and there's, like I said, there's a contact page and all the information that you need to know is, is really there. Sweet. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you, Joel. I appreciate you spending time with me. I, all of our time is really valuable and I'm honored that you chose to spend some time with me and my audience, and um, I'm just super grateful. Well, Steve, the, uh, really, thanks for reaching out to me because I I, I love talking about this stuff. Um, you had you had great questions, and and I really appreciate you uh, you know giving me the chance to do this. Great, thanks so much, Joel. Thank you. Hi there. Thanks again for listening to this week's show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Joel as much as I did. It's always fun talking to one of your heroes and Joel certainly one for me in the saxophone world. Make sure to head over to the website, theplayfulmusician.com. There you can listen to all the past shows and you can get show notes from today's show and all the other shows and links to everything we talked about today and all the people that were mentioned in the show as well. There's a lot of good information there theplayfulmusician.com thanks again everybody until next time take good care <laughs>